And as you're being seated, let's pray. God, Heavenly Father, we, we come to you with trembling and a little bit of apprehension about this text. So Lord, I ask that uh, you would take what we have today and that you would be glorified and you would be magnified in your words to us. I ask that you would give us clarity of thought and understanding as we look at this difficult text. In your name I pray, amen. So if you are new, welcome. My name is Heath. I'm part of the team at Christ City here. Um, and if you're visiting, uh, you picked an interesting Sunday to show up. Uh, just uh, fill in the gaps. We've been going through, uh, since September, the Sermon on the Mount. And so today we land on a, you know, sort of dreary February day on the topic of divorce. The only thing that could make this worse if I was speaking on divorce and finances at the same time. Okay, so one of the crazy things about being as old as I am is that all of the stupidity things that I did as a kid, I did before this omnipresent phone in my pocket. So none of it is on YouTube. So when I was about 16 years old, my buddy and I, we were in the field. I grew up in the middle of nowhere, and we're on our dirt bikes. And we're ripping through the mud, and out of the corner of our eyes, we see this kind of big black thing in the field. So we thought, oh, cool, we're going to go check this out. So we, we rip on our bikes, and we go over there. And as we get closer, we realize that it's a dead cow. Now, not only an ordinary dead cow, but it was about twice the size of what it should be, because it was bloated, and it had been there for a while. Now, in your mind, you're thinking, where is he going with this? And so, so, you know, an idea formed. So we decided, we got off our bikes, and we decided that we would have this fun game. And we thought, okay, we're going to run as fast as we can to this cow, and, and whoever can get closer without throwing up wins. Okay, it's before Netflix. Come on, redneck entertainment. What do I say? So we flipped this coin, and my buddy got the short end of the stick, and it was his turn to go first. What could possibly go wrong in this scenario? So my friend, he grips it up, and he starts running, you know, and he's not really that in shape, so he's huffing and puffing, and by the time he gets to about three feet in front of the cow, he trips. Have you ever seen a, a water balloon pop? My friend went headfirst into this cow. And oh, it was kind of an explosion of methane, tissue, and slime. And I'll spare you all the details, but his, his head came out literally soaked in slime, spitting out maggots. And we spent the next 20 minutes hurling our guts out in the field. Not one of my finer or more intelligent moments, let me tell you. So why do I tell you this ridiculous and disgusting story? You see, our text for us this morning is like that bloated cow. It's a difficult subject. We avoid talking about it. We want to just to leave it to rot in the field. We don't want to go near it. It's decay and death. It stinks, and nobody wants to touch it. Our, we hold our collective breaths as we kind of, you know, just kind of just skirt the issue. We hope that this subject evaporates into thin air. But no matter how much we want this subject to go away, all of us have people in our lives that are divorced. It could be your parents, your grandparents, your siblings, your uncles, your aunts, your best friends. Man, I've been married almost 24 years, and I can't tell you how many of my friends are split up. Maybe this morning you have been divorced and you're kind of struggling with the stigma, you know, and the shame maybe that has been put upon you by others. 
See, all of us are affected by this reality of divorce. We all feel the weight of broken relationships. So let's take a collective breath and just acknowledge the awkwardness of this. Far too long we've left the cow in the field hoping that it'll just kind of go away. So this morning, we metaphorically flipped the coin and we're launching headfirst into the bloated cow. So, you with me? A couple of ground rules before we get started. Because this is a hugely difficult subject. I must state this right here at the front end so there's no confusion whatsoever. First is know that this is a difficult text. I feel the weight of this. I, I, I don't think I've read more for a sermon than this one. I understand that the volatile emotions that are attached to it, and I'm going to treat us like adults. Novel idea. I'm going to teach what the text says, give some application to it, but if I happen to say something that offends you, that bothers you, you come and talk to me directly afterwards, please. The second thing is I will not say absolutely everything there is to say on this subject. I will not direct, directly address all the what-if scenarios in our lives surrounding this issue. No, that these specific scenarios, I understand, they represent people stuck in complicated and really difficult scenarios. Please understand that not addressing them this morning specifically doesn't mean that I, I don't believe that their pain is valid or real. Understand that, please. Now, thirdly, there's an expectation here that, you know, that what I tie together here in like a 40-minute sermon is like a prescriptive immediacy to how things should be handled. Just as we talked about a few weeks ago the, with the issue of anger, there's, there could be a, a realization that, oh, maybe we could just get all this stuff kind of taken care of right away. No. Broken relationships take years and years to mend. Lastly, we need to approach this text with caution and humility. If what Lee taught us last week is true, if our hearts, you know, if our hearts exhibit lust, and if, and if that lust leads us to adultery, then we need to know that all of us are one step away from this being our story. Our reality. We, we're one step away from finding ourselves in a, maybe a complicated, messy divorce. We need to acknowledge that we, every single one of us here, are not immune to this. It doesn't matter if you happen to be in a really good spot right now. So, are you guys with me? Okay, so we're going to follow the rough outline of the text. We're going to look at what was said, what Jesus said, and then at the end we're going to tackle, you know, some implications in our culture and, and for us this morning. So, what has been said? Number one, Matthew 5.31 says, It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give, a, give her a certificate of divorce. Now on the surface, we wonder why divorce is on this list, right? You know, we just talked about the destructive nature of anger and, and the raw issue of lust. What the heck's with divorce? Like, what? We don't get it. What is Jesus talking about? Why is this one right after this? Well, and if you even are careful, like, divorce isn't even part of the Ten Commandments. So where is it even in the Old Testament? How does this apply to us? Now, for us to understand how radical and how relevant the words that Jesus taught are, we need to first look at what Moses taught on this subject. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. This is the Old Testament teaching on divorce. When a, man when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he's found some indecency in her, he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house, and she departs out of his house. 
And if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and, la and the later man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife. After she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Now, during the time of Moses, more than a millennia before Jesus, marriage and divorce was a chaotic reality. All of the power, all of the control was in the hand of, you guessed it, the husband. Now, I just felt every woman's hackles raise right there. You see, this power imbalance meant that in the context of marriage, especially in divorce, men were often taken advantage of, taken adva or women, rather, were often taken advantage of. They were treated as property. They were discarded with little thought, particularly with the well-being of her kids. The man, if he no longer desired her, could cast her away for very cruel and horrible reasons. More specifically, the problem with this was the punishment for infidelity or adultery was stoning, death by stoning. So if what happened was, if the man didn't like his wife, he cast her out, there was a very real possibility that somebody could falsely accuse her of adultery and actually it lead to her death, making the situation even worse for kids. So in Deuteronomy chapter 24, Moses here, he puts forth some guidelines to actually help deal with the protection of the women and children in these marriages. Hear me on this. The Old Testament teaching on divorce was for directly for the protection of women. Moses sought to bring some order and to some balance into the chaos of a marital breakup. Many times the Bible gets a bad rap for being, you know, like a how-to manual for, you know, perpetrating the evils of the patriarchy. But you need to understand, the Old Testament teaching here was for protection of women and children. So, as we read, the law goes like this. There had to be a reason for the divorce, right? The, the text says, a lack of favor due to an indecency. Practically speaking, this could be a lot of different things. A physical ailment, a moral issue, uh, a perceived natural defect. This could be anything from a lack of respect shown to the husband to an inability to bear children, an heir. Now, this seems archaic to us, but we have to remember these rules were put in place to regulate the chaos of a breakup on a whim. So, the man had to articulate a reason, a specific reason for the divorce. The second thing, he had to, with this reason, had to write a certificate of divorce saying, I'm divorcing you for this reason. And he had to hand it to her, and then he could put her out of the house. Now, this certificate was huge. As I said before, it gave her freedom to not be persecuted against for being an adulterer. It's just, no, actually, I just can't cook very well, so therefore he put me out of the house. It gave her freedom. It gave her freedom to marry again with no constraint or no baggage left back from the former husband. Now, once divorced, once remarried, let's say uh, the new husband dies she cannot remarry the first guy again. So it goes like this. Um, if Sally divorces Joe, and man, you know, marries Bob, and if Bob dies, Sally can't go back and remarry Joe. Why? Because to her, both men are dead. Unless, by law, she's able to free another guy, maybe George, right? So th this, this thing gave her freedom to be able to be taken care of. So these, these laws were meant to be freeing, 
They were meant to be liberating and for protection of the women and children associated with marriage. This is what was commanded by Moses, and it was a stopgap. But unfortunately, as we will see here, this was kind of twisted and changed by the Pharisees. So what did the Pharisees teach upon this law of Moses? Let's shed some light on this. We need to turn to a, a, another text called in Matthew chapter 19, where a couple of Pharisees asked Jesus this directly, direct question dealing with divorce. So Matthew 19, 3 through 8 says this. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Excuse me. They said to him, why did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. These are two very significant deviations that the Pharisees put into place. They focused on the letter of the law, not the heart of the law, and reduced and truncated and pulled out the protective teeth that Moses put in. And they ignored, firstly, they ignored the command to provide a reason for divorce. And secondly, they taught that Moses, you know, commanded divorce. They taught that Moses commanded divorce. So the reality was that these two provisions or deviations from Moses' law led to the, once again, the exploitation of women. So if you could divorce for any reason and encourage to do so, what stopped you from being a serial monogamist or a predator? What stopped you from being Harvey Weinstein? Really, what stopped you? Nothing. So if I get married, which I am, and after a couple years I get bored with my wife, which I haven't, let's just say that I meet an attractive woman from down the street and and all I have to do, no matter what the reason, if I like this other girl, I can just say, sorry, sweetie, you're out of the house, and I could be therefore free to marry this other girl. And then a few years down the road, I can, I can, oh, wow, there's this amazing girl in the market, divorce my new wife and get the other one. And what this does is it creates a cycle, a cycle of serial adultery. It's no different today. The Pharisees wanted options in their cohabitation. They wanted options and flexibility in their sexuality by sticking to the letter of the law they justified and codified the very thing that moses was trying to protect against the pharisees used the law to legislate and allow for their selfish autonomy that's the root issue they twisted the law so that their personal happiness was the final straw the final decision maker what is best for me blinded by their autonomy they failed to see the real meaning of marriage we can now then begin to understand and make sense of why Jesus says what he says in our text this morning. This is not just some random sermon about, you know, legislating impossible morality here, but it's about protecting the real purpose and meaning behind marriage. And this is why it's so applicable for today. So what does Jesus say then, point number two? Matthew 5, 31 and 32 again. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife... Let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you 
that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. There is a real reason why this text comes right after the text of lust. You see, Jesus effectively says that the grounds for the certificate of divorce is illegitimate. And by default, you are serial adulterers, you're predators. Jesus says to the Pharisees that following the letter of law, you miss the forest for the trees and you miss the heart of the law. Jesus states that they become the very thing that they try to avoid monogamous adulterers and thus liable to death by stoning talk about a mic drop jesus links their divorce schema here directly back to lust and adultery and tells them that they are far worse than they could possibly ever imagine jesus tells them that they're far worse and their codification for adultery here is a horrible thing that they need to not do so the question is, what becomes of marriage then? Where do we go from here? So let's go back to Matthew 19. I'll read it again. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by saying, Is it lawful to divorce one's, man, or one's wife rather, for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And they said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. See, they try to trick Jesus, and they ask him this question. They ask, hey, is it lawful to put our wives away for any reason, to divorce our wives for any reason? This is exactly what they were doing. I can almost see Jesus' eyes rolling. I would love to do a study, I've said this before, on Jesus' use of sarcasm. But he's rolling his eyes and said, like, wrong question, guys. The real question isn't about what scenarios are surrounding your divorces. The real question is, what is the purpose behind marriage itself? And Jesus answered by going directly back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. and says, look, the purpose is one flesh. Genesis 2, 24 says, Therefore a man shall leave his, his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Jesus goes all the way back to creation and states that marriage is an act of God of joining two autonomous individuals, one male and one female, into one union. Bone of my bone, flesh is my flesh, as Adam says earlier in that text. Jesus states that if that's true, if this is true that God joins them together, then who are you to frivolously cut it apart? You know, who are you to bring an army of hamsters to chew through these bonds? Now, allow me to nerd out a bit here. I, uh, this, is, this idea of one flesh, we need to explain it. Um, our culture at large is kind of like, what? That's weird. Um, so, allow me to nerd out. I, I like to blacksmith. And uh, so, I have a blacksmithing metaphor for us. So, all of us have a working concept of what blacksmithing is, right? You've got this chunk of steel, you throw it into the fire, and when it gets red hot, you pull it out with your tongs, because you don't use your hands, because you're smarter than that, and you put it on your anvil, and you beat on it with a hammer, and you can actually shape this piece of steel into something interesting. It's like uh, Play-Doh for, you know, grown-ups. 
But what if you needed to join two things together? Two pieces of steel. Maybe one piece is a soft piece of steel and the other is a harder piece of steel. How do you do that? So what you do is you take these two pieces of dissimilar metals and you stick them in the forge and you heat them up until they're white hot. And then you do a thing called forge welding. You pull them out of there, you put them on your anvil, you put it one on top of the other, you take your big hammer and with a few quick strokes, bang, 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 you set the weld. And what that does, molecularly, it joins them two together. So you cannot tell one piece of steel to the other. They're actually fused together. The two shall become one, indivisible. Once forge welded, you could actually take that piece, put it in the forge, rework it as if it was one piece that had never been two pieces. And the only way to separate them at this point is if you got a hacksaw. It's the only way to separate a forge-welded piece of steel. This is what Jesus is saying here. Marriage is like being forge-welded together to your spouse, not knowing where your molecules end and where hers begins, or the other way around. Being married, being married is not first and foremost about our autonomous happiness, but rather one existing for the other. A helpmate to your spouse. This is hard. The text doesn't say, you know, leave your father and mother and live happily ever after. It says, the two shall leave your father and mother and become one flesh. You see, it's not a fairy tale. This is real life, and we all know it. So with this, then, the Pharisees ask a qualifying question to Jesus in verse 7. He says, well, why then did Moses command a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And his answer was this. He says, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Jesus pierces directly to the heart of the issue and states that Moses never commanded divorce. The only reason these laws exist is because mankind's heart is hard. His propensity to think only for himself and his sexual needs are the real issue. Divorce was never the original concept of marriage. But because of the destructive nature of sin, divorce was allowed to protect the victims of those in the relationship. Divorce wasn't a command or a privilege, but rather a consequence of the blackness of our hearts. We are far worse than we could possibly ever imagine. Jesus then states, this is the moving forward, that the only reason in our kingdom here, the only reason for divorce then is that for infidelity or adultery. Has everybody thought that? Why is that one? Well, it's a very practical reason. You see, if we go back to the understanding of the original law, we know that if somebody was caught in adultery, they were stoned to death. And so therefore, if somebody has an affair on somebody else, by law, they were dead. Moving forward from Jesus, nobody was stoned for being an, for being an adultery. But marriage was dissolved because it was as if that person was dead, physically and, and emotionally speaking. And therefore, what it did was allowed that person who was who is perpetrated against to allow them to marry again and be free to do so. Jesus states that the only legitimate cause for divorce and remarriage is that of adultery, period. People, we are far worse than we can possibly ever imagine. Now, right about now, 
every single person in this room, including me, are thinking about all of the what-if scenarios that we could place in here. What about this? What about this? What about this? Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32 says, It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. What Jesus says here is hard for us to hear. Because deep down, we see the injustice that happens. And our instinct is either one of two things, either to fight or to run. Fight or flight. Either we, we fight, we, we, we argue, we battle, or we pack up our stuff and we go away. But Jesus leaves no wiggle room for that here. He leaves no room for what-if scenarios here. We need to feel the weight of this. Jesus leaves no wiggle room at all. We are married. We are forged well to our spouse, for better or for worse. And that brings us to our final point of what do we do with this? Now, we live in Vancouver in 2020, and we live in a culture that holds personal autonomy as the rule of law. We are no different than the Pharisees. I decide for myself what's best for me. I make decisions based on my happiness. I, I, you know, I therefore, you know, Jesus' teachings here are irrelevant to my marriage, my happiness, and my sexual unions. And at the root, it's no different than the interpretive grid of the Pharisees. It indicates our hardness of heart, just like theirs. Our culture, marriage, the one flesh union that Jesus reminds us here, it's irrelevant. It's seen as irrelevant as an antiquated part of the patriarchy. One that we no longer need for the protection of our kids, our children, no longer needed to survive. Therefore, we can cast off the chains of, of marriage that hold us down and forge new relationships, new types of relationships for the direct needs that I have. Janet Hardy and Dossie Easton, in their book on polyamory and ethical non-monogamy, generally, generally dis, dis, describe society's viewpoint this way. The nuclear family, which consists of parents and children relatively isolated from the extended middle class, is a relic of the 20th century middle class. Children no longer work on the farm or in family businesses. They are raised almost like pets. Marriage today is no longer essential for survival. Now we may marry in pursuit of comfort, security, sex, intimacy, and emotional connection. The increase in divorce so deployed by today's religious right may simply reflect the economic reality that today most of us can afford to leave relationships in which we are not happy. No one will starve. And still modern Puritans attempt to enforce the nuclear family on monogamous marriage by teaching of sexual shame. So is this indictment upon us upon the church, upon what the Bible teaches, is this accurate? Is Jesus' view presented for us in this text marital control by sexual shame? I don't think so. See, I think that just like the Pharisees, Janet Hardy and Dossie Eaton miss the whole point. Due to hardness of heart, they don't understand the purpose of marriage. It's not monogamous, you know, monogamy based on sexual shame, but rather monogamy based on one flesh, a union welded together of man and wife, individuals fused together, selflessly existing for the other. 
One flesh marriage is supposed to represent God's sacrificial love and care for the world. Now, even with this truncated or reduced societal view of marriage, there's still a desire for marriage. There's still a desire for longevity in our relationships. Why are breakups one of the most stressful and painful parts of human existence? Like on the level of, of death of a loved one. Why, why in all the books, it's, it's embarrassing to tell you how many books I read on relationships this last week, but in all the books, why are some of the key chapters all about jealousy, and particularly jealousy in, in, when it comes to betrayal? Why? In our, in our autonomous kind of worldview, why do we care? Why do we simultaneously desire a marriage or a relationship that lasts? Why? It doesn't make any sense, though, right? Now, last spring, my wife and I had celebrated our 23rd wedding anniversary. And, you know, shortly thereafter, I had a really good buddy of mine come for a visit. Um, I hadn't seen him for a while, so we decided to go to one of the, you know, beer establishments that was a block or so from my house, and, and we decided to uh, sit ourselves at a table. Uh, it was huge. There was so many places at the table, so we sat down there, and we started visiting. We were chatting it up. He had just celebrated his 25th, and we are yapping away. And this whole group of skiers, you know, like ski lift workers from Grouse Mountain come up, and they're like, hey, dude, you know, can I sit here? I, uh, there's no other place here. Can I have a point with you? And I'm like, yeah, sure. So this other guy comes in, and we get talking, and he was from, he was from Quebec. And we're chatting away, and everybody kind of goes up for another drink. And this guy leans in. He kind of comes up and close to me and says, all right, no BS. Can you tell me the secret of a long marriage? I'm like, why do you care, dude? He's like, see that girl over there at the bar? I'm like, yeah. He says, I think she's the one. I'm like, okay. He's like, could you tell me the secret to a long marriage? And I said to him, I said, well, what I'm about to tell you, you are not going to like. He's like, nah, of course I'll like it. So I said, there's a, there's a, there's a transition that happens in a marriage that's long enough that says you have to turn from loving somebody from what you can get from them to loving somebody for who they truly are. And I begin to tell them my personal rubric on relationships. It's in three steps. The first step is autonomous infatuation phase. This is where everything's great, and if you're not a Christian, you're having sex, everything's wonderful, it's great, amazing. You move in together. And then after a while, things start to like slow down, and you're like, oh man, I really don't like the way she does this, or I don't really, you know, he's an idiot, and like, how, how come I didn't see this before? And, and over time, you begin to get what I call, and you transition to the I hate you phase. This is about year, you know, five to seven, and this is where most people get divorced initially. So let's say you wake up in the morning, and, and your, your significant other is like ugly, and you're like, I have no idea why I'm with you. I want to get out of here. And what you've done is you've tapped everything that you could out of that relationship. There is nothing more that person could give you, and you hate them for it. Now, I'm speaking hyperbolic terms here, but maybe I'm not. It says, at some point during this phase, you have to learn to look at your partner with fresh eyes and begin to see them for their intrinsic worth. And over time, you begin to love them and care for them in ways that are not selfish but sacrificial. And that is what I call the true love phase. 
And then I said to the guy, at that point, the sex is better, the relationship's better, you have more fun together. And he's like, and the dude, this guy is jaws on the table, and he's like, you just described every relationship I've ever been in. And he's tearing up and he's saying, that's so profound. And then I dropped the bombshell. I said, I told you you're not going to like what I'm going to say. I said, the, you're stuck. There is no way you can transition on your own from the I hate you phase to the true love phase. He's like, why? So because, because you can't. You've tried, haven't you? I said, the only way you can do it is you need something outside of yourself, and that something is Jesus. And then he tells me to F off. And I said, I told you you wouldn't like it. You see, skeptically, he walks away. He says, dude, I'm going to have to think about that. And I left him saying, you will never be happy unless you sort this out. I like leaving people with like weird curses like that. It's kind of strange. <laughs> see, this guy was a serial Tinder hookup guy. He was living the ultimate ideal free and easy lifestyle. He lived a non-monogamous lifestyle and he loved it. Until he saw something in somebody else that he realized, man, I don't have that. He desired it. He wanted it. Deep down, he knew he, knew, he wanted and needed longevity in a relationship. And my stupid little rubric explained the true meaning of what a one-flesh marriage looks like. Our society still longs, still longs for relationships that have meaning and longevity. But with that, we still haven't solved the elephant in the room, have we? Now, if you've been paying attention, just because Jesus, you know, ramps it up and issues an ultimatum and says, no more divorce, doesn't mean that the hardness of man's heart has changed, has it? In fact, you could argue, and you could say that by Jesus closing every single loophole, that doesn't he actually make things worse for the vulnerable and the least protected? Particularly, particularly for the what-if scenarios of abuse and domestic violence. This is what makes this issue so difficult. And the answer is yes. Yes, it is worse. He makes it worse if... If we rip this text out of the Bible and we place it in a hermetically sealed chamber and we analyze it from there. That's the only reason and the only way that this makes sense. See, time and time again, that's how the church deals with divorce. They treat divorce as the unforgivable sin. We put people in silos or, you know, hospice, and we just leave them there to rot like the cow. But as with every single issue that we've dealt with since September on the Sermon on the Mount, divorce and remarriage is no different. Jesus, every single time, with every single issue, he leaves us. He brings us to the cliff edge of our autonomy and says, hey, maybe you need something outside of yourself to solve your problem. You see, we, we as the church, our statistics for divorce are the same as those outside the church. On our own, people, our marriages are in trouble. On our own, we get stuck in the I hate you phase, just like everybody else. On our own, on our own, we are stuck. The sin of divorce is but a flower that grows upon the hardness of our hearts. And just like my Quebecois friend, we need something outside of ourselves to change our heart. So then with this ultimatum of no divorce... Jesus actually, what he does, it's pretty brilliant. 
he resets us all back to factory default settings. His solution really isn't an ultimate ethic to uphold when we can't, but rather a leveling of the power structures here. We're all left with the reality that in every single area of our lives, from anger to lust, to our marital relationship status, to as we will speak about in the future, to how we speak to others around us and how we deal with injustice, all of these, every single area of our lives, we need Jesus. That's what he's saying here. He doesn't just leave us hanging with the inability to accomplish this. No, his solution is the giving of himself. And in that, Jesus has the capacity to deal with all the painful scenarios that are all in our own minds this morning. And it has to always do with the hardness of our heart. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he, he was a medical doctor that turned pastor, lived in the UK, and he wrote this in the 1950s. So the height of the, the religious right movement, this is when this guy lived and this is what he wrote. Have you nothing to say about others? And he's talking about the what-if scenarios. All I would say about them is this. And I say it carefully and advisedly and almost in fear lest I give a semblance of a suggestion that I'm saying anything that may encourage anyone to sin. But on the basis of the gospel and the interests of truth, I am compelled to say this. Even adultery is not the unforgivable sin. It is a terrible sin, but God forbid that there should be anyone who feels that he or she has sinned himself or herself outside of the love of God or outside of his kingdom because of adultery. Wow. No. If you truly repent and realize the enormity of your sin and cast yourself upon the boundless love and mercy and grace of God, you can be forgiven. And I assure you of a pardon. But hear the words of our blessed. Our blessed Lord. Go and sin no more. He's referring to a, a scenario in John chapter 8 where the Pharisees bring a woman caught in adultery. And Jesus says to them, whoever has no sin, cast the first stone. And slowly, everybody evaporates. He looks up to the woman and says, see, where are your accusers? There are none, sir. Go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. Jesus just doesn't leave us hanging here Hanging in our what-if scenarios, Jesus' solution is giving of himself. And that, and in that, Jesus has the capacity to change our hearts, to deal with all of the painful stuff that's there due to the hardness of our hearts. Two truths remain here this morning. Hear me on this. Divorce has never been in God's design for marriage. In this text, he forbids it. Divorce is a sin that greatly displeases God because it's a sin of autonomy. It's a sin of rebellion against God. Divorce is far worse than we could possibly ever imagine. And we need to see that very clearly this morning. Yet at the same time, as Martin Lloyd-Jones points out that God's love and mercy is far greater than you could ever hope for. Jesus, in an ultimate act of sacrificial love, because of the hardness of man's hearts, he gives himself. He takes our broken pieces and he fuses us back together. He forge welds himself to us. In a world of serial adultery, Jesus died to wake a, take away the shame, the stigma associated with divorce. He died to make you whole, to make you new. And through Jesus, you can go and sin no more. 
this text is, more, is less about a command than it is about a beautiful beacon of hope that Jesus actually, he says that we can be made new. See, there was a time when I sat across the table from my wife. I decided it would be really cool to do a, you know, a two-year job in eight months, and I was double shifting. I was working as an electrician. And she sat me down across this table, and I was struggling to stay awake. And she said to me, if things didn't change, she's leaving, taking the kids and going. The very thing, the only thing that I thought that was going right in my life just exploded in my face. Now, during that difficult time, the first three verses of 1 John chapter 2 saved my life. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And let me tell you, I was a selfish mess of sin growing everywhere. I looked like a leprous guy. I had so much sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. But not only for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, is that we keep his commandments. Jesus is our advocate. He goes before God in an act of selfless love, dies the death that our hard hearts and our selfish hearts, our autonomous hearts deserves. That our propensity for divorce demands. That's what propitiation means here. He is the sacrifice that takes away the penalty of sin. These verses changed my heart. I truly repented. I really realized the enormity of my stuff, my sin, and I cast it upon, as Lord Jones says, the boundless love and mercy and grace of God in my life changed. Not overnight. It took years. But over time, I was able to love Mariko for who she is rather than what I can get or manipulate from her. And it's still a daily struggle. But I love her far more than what I can ever get from her. Once again, Christ City, we're standing, we're left standing on the cliff edge here. We're standing at the cliff edge of our own autonomy. Some of us are broken. Some of us are hurt. Some of us are suffering from horrible injustices. Too horrible to speak of unable to open up, and it feels like the hardness of your heart is the only thing that has protected you. I get it. Others of us are guilty of being serial adulterers. You know, we're on Tinder, we're at Tinder and we're swiping whichever way Tinder swipes, and, and, and we're just looking for substitutes. We're on a hamster wheel of Tinder hookups, and it's just not working for us. Others have been married for quite a while, and things feel distant, don't have the original spark, you love each other, sure, but not quite for who they are. All of us this morning need to surrender our autonomy to Jesus, particularly in the area of our relationships, marriages, and sexuality. We need to rely wholly on Jesus, the righteous one. By his death, his burial, his resurrection, it can transform our lives from being marked by what I can get from the other to being a beacon of hope to live sacrificially for your spouse. Please stand as we respond. Thanks for listening. 
For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.